Hey everyone, welcome to Group Text. I don't have to lead with the fact that I am a true crime junkie. We say this all the time, and I'm a documentary junkie. So my guest today is Landon Von Soost, the director of the astonishing new true crime documentary, The Jewel Thief, currently streaming on Hulu. The subject of the film is Gerald Blanchard, who just might be the most accomplished criminal you've never heard of. As Landon's film recounts, Gerald fancied himself one part Danny Ocean, one part Artful Dodger, and one part James Bond, owing that last comparison to his theft of the world-famous and highly guarded star of Sisi, one of the famous jewels Empress Elizabeth of Austria wore in her hair, out of its case at the Schönbrunn Palace in Vienna. Here to talk about his intriguing new film is Landon Von Soost. Welcome to Group Text. Thanks so much. It's a thrill to be here. I got to ask you, I mean, the story is fascinating. How did you first hear about Gerald? Yeah, I think, you know, similar to probably a lot of people, you know, there were tabloid stories around the time that he got arrested that were really fixated on, you know, the stealing of this crown jewel out of the castle in Austria. Um, and it just sounds like this sort of fairy tale, you know, James Bond-esque heist, the way that the story has been told over and over again and, you know, piqued my interest. So I, I went back to just dig a little bit and Googled this guy and just realized what a well there is. I mean, he, you know, went on this decades long crime spree with just each kind of escapade and each heist and each scheme, just more elaborate and more complex than the last. So just completely intrigued by the character and, you know, spent spent quite a while trying to track him down and put the pieces together. Okay, give my listeners a quick primer about him. Because it, it, I can't summarize it as you heard during my intro. I'm not good at condensing things. So give, give the listeners a quick primer about him. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's genuinely tough to be brief because he is, you know... He did. He had tentacles in so many different things, and I think that's part of what makes the story just so, you know, astounding to watch. Um, but he, you know, he started as a, a very skinny kind of bespectacled kid in Omaha, you know, in kind of a rough neighborhood, and made a name for himself shoplifting, stealing from Radio Shack, and just kind of these nerdy electronics and things. But graduated from there to bank robberies, to jewel heists, and eventually these kind of international crime syndicates. You know, he truly did fashion himself as this, you know, international criminal mastermind. It, it is unbelievable to watch the progression and um, the balls he had <laughs> to keep taking it up a notch. What drew you to him? I think that that's, you know, realizing just the breadth of everything that he had, you know, accomplished, I should say with air quotes, if you look at it that way. But um, certainly he, you know, just the ingenuity behind the heists that he pulled off. And I think, you know, the fact that this story had such a, a long kind of range, you know, that it had a very natural sort of rise and fall, um, you know, all of those things were just very appealing to me as a storyteller. Um, but I, you know, and then sort of come to find out that he was actually filming, you know, half of this stuff that he had hundreds of hours of home movie footage that a lot of this existed. I mean, just, as a documentary filmmaker, it's just sort of like, you know, it's such a gift to to come across a story like this. I mean, it's unbelievable because you have like, for lack of a better way to, to put it, these home movies. But it's a true crime story, which part of it is interesting to me is it's completely the way you tell it, devoid of violence and mystery. 
I mean, you start with like, here's the bad guy. Here's the criminal. Now we're just going to follow him rather than unraveling how, you know, the discovery. Was that because, did you make that decision because you actually had, I mean, an absurd amount of footage that he provided? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, first I'll say that, you know, the fact that there wasn't kind of a dark, you know, kind of underbelly to this story, that there wasn't kind of a grisly murder or something that, you know, I think would have required really treating the story with a certain amount of, um, you know, seriousness, I guess, for lack of a better (laughs) word, you know. He almost, you know, exclusively targeted financial institutions. And as you said, you know, no one was ever physically injured in any of his crimes. Um, And I think that that was just so, you know, so unique and so fascinating to me, but also just kind of opened the door to to tell a story that, frankly, is just very fun, you know? (laughs) I mean, people have to watch it because, you know, he's stealing from the big banks, which are seemingly victimless especially when a single mom is being foreclosed on but you got to think taken from like radio shack affects the owner's livelihood do he just see it as a series of locked doors to pick i mean does he care about the people that potentially suffered quote unquote from his crimes he certainly i mean i think with the benefit of hindsight you know he'll certainly you know, he feels terrible about, you know, kind of dragging his family into this and the way that all of it has kind of affected them. And I think that he sees that more now, you know, I think if I had to wager a guess, I mean, I think that he just kind of saw corporations and institutions, you know, cultural institutions and banks all kind of painted them with the same brush that they were just sort of these huge monoliths. And they I think he really kind of saw himself as a little guy, you know, that I think he felt very disrespected by authorities at a young age and was really just, you know, over and over again, trying to prove that he was more capable and smarter than whoever he kind of perceived to be an authority figure or someone who was, you know, uh, better, better than him or acted better than him. Um, And I think that that's really, you know, going back to your previous question, I just think it it was fascinating to me that he, you know, well, as you alluded to, you know, he grew up pretty meager upbringings. And I think there might have been some financial incentive at the beginning for a lot of his crimes. But I just think as he went, he so quickly, you know, amassed more money than he knew what to do with. You know, he he bought a house as a 16 year old. Okay, I got to I got to punt the brakes because I wanted to talk about that. Some alarm. I mean, I'm a parent and my son at 16 said, I just bought a house. I would be highly suspect. How and the his his it's his his mother loves him and is not proud of him, but like at one point didn't you have to say because you interviewed the mother, wait a minute. This didn't give you pause. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I certainly did ask those questions. I mean, she will swear up and down that she didn't know what he was doing, didn't know the extent of what he was doing. I think, you know, as you stated, it's very hard to believe that she couldn't have, you know, had a very strong inkling. I mean, he also will say that he really sheltered her from that, etc. I mean, it's, I think that they had a, you know, they clearly had a very close and loving relationship. And I think to this day, she really just really wants to protect him and protect his image and everything else, you know? So I, 
I don't know. It's it's a it's a very interesting question, and I think there's a lot of characters in the story that you know I just kind of want people to be able to make up their own minds about, and a lot of gaps to fill in for the viewers too. Yeah, because sick when your when your sixteen year old comes home and says, you know, I bought a house, you would expect them to come home and have spent money on something ridiculous, like look at this. 200 gallon fish tank I bought you know what I mean or you know I bought a home theater you know that you can kind of like go well okay but a house is is that's pretty serious um what was there anything that he was reluctant to talk about because without giving it away let me just backtrack for a sec Gerald's actually in the documentary and explain how why he's not in jail because that took me a minute to process yeah i mean (laughs) it's a very good question i was shocked by that i mean i think when i came across this story you know you figure he's serving a life sentence somewhere um but you know i guess a short answer is just that the canadian penal system is not nearly as um extreme, I guess, is the American justice system. I mean, I think these same crimes would have carried a much harsher sentence in the U.S., but, you know, and talk to him, you know, I think he will, he'll kind of tell you that he was very calculating about which crimes he chose to do, and the fact that he, you know, didn't do any violent crimes, the fact that he never carried a weapon, um, the fact that he almost always, you know, acted alone, um, a lot of these things really, you know, just because of the way the law works in Canada, um, you know, didn't carry very heavy sentences. Um, and he was, you know, not to give too much away in the film, but um, he was very smart about the way he handled his legal interests, <laughs> I will say. <laughs> but I think that he, you know, I, again, I think it was a big, huge turning point in his life, you know, as a teenager to be arrested in the United States, serve real hard prison time, you know, as a minor, Um, and ultimately be deported to Canada, you know, I think that that, you know, gave him a a very vested interest in in thinking about how he pursued his his criminal career. It it certainly didn't seem to slow him down at all, but he he was much more sophisticated about it. And, you know, again, to hear him tell it, he sort of always knew he was going to be arrested and he was sort of laying his, you know, playing his cards to lessen his sentence once that actually happened. I mean, he is so alarmingly smart. I mean, you got to say like, I can't believe like the FBI hasn't, or the CIA hasn't like, didn't like see this kid and scoop him up. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) um, it is kind of amazing, honestly. And he has these almost kind of savant like skills, you know, to, to break codes and to, you know, beat systems um, but I, one of my favorite lines in the film, one of the police says, you know, just how could somebody so smart be so dumb, you know, that he will spend a year, you know, planning this perfect heist at a bank and walk out with half a million dollars. And then the next day he's smacking or strapping smoke bombs to his chest and sawing into an ATM. You know, it's almost like different urges, I think, you know, that there was, there was a side of him that's just very careful and very calculating and another side that just needed that thrill, you know, really wanted that thrill of the chase and sort of wanted an audience. And and I think, you know, as you said that I didn't think about this when I was watching is a lot of it has to do with youth. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? A lot of it has to be like, let's go blow up a mailbox, you know? (laughs) 
<laughs> this episode is sponsored by Via Hemp. Ah, yes, summer, longer days, warmer nights, and the incessant chirping of crickets, reminding you that sleep is a precious commodity. Whether you need to set the mood in the bedroom or just unwind after a day battling the sun, Via has your back. Enter their Rest and Recovery Gummies, a magical concoction of passion flower, L-theanine, and cannabinoids designed to lull you into a state of blissful tranquility. With options for both the THC tolerant and the THC shy, Via ensures you'll find your perfect dosage for achieving peak comfort. Via isn't just about taming the sleep monsters. They've got a whole array of gummies to cater to every whim and fancy with or without THC. And... They'll discreetly ship their goodies straight to your doorstep, no matter which of the 50 states you call home. Just sit back, relax, and let Vaya work its magic. So, if you're 21 plus, you can get 15% off a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code. Head to ViaHemp.com and use the code GROUPTEXT to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's ViaHemp.com. V-I-I-A. H-E-M-P dot com. So I have tried their Zen gummies and I got to tell you, they are amazing. I live in a very sort of continual stressed out state from work to being a mom to, well, just life in general. And the Zen gummies have been amazing for me. Head to ViaHemp.com and use the code GROUPTEXT to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies, 21+. plus. That's ViaHemp.com, V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P.com. And use the code GROUPTEXT at checkout. Enhance your every day with ViaHemp. Um, the law enforcement you brought them up, you interviewed, had sort of almost this weird reverence toward, toward him. The law enforcement you spoke to seemed to have this sort of reverence for him because of his patience. I mean, and they admit to underestimating him. He was so, and this is one of my favorite moments, he was so blatant that while handcuffed, he stole a police car, drove through a police checkpoint, and had no shirt on, and waved to the, to the officer. I mean... They had to have loved him on some strange way. That was one of the most surprising things to me, too, because, you you know, some of these police officers, he just flat out humiliated. You know, several of them told me that they thought they were going to lose his jobs or lose their jobs after uh, run ins with him. And they, you know, almost across the board, were very happy to talk about these things, you know, and tell these stories. And I think part of it is, you know huge moments in their life and just very shocking stories that they can look back on, you know, 20 years later and sort of laugh about. But, you know, I I think I just came to realize that when you're a police officer, you know, you're kind of just dealing with knuckleheads 90% of the time and domestic violence and a lot of very dark, you know, um, side of our society, I guess. And I think to come across somebody like this, who frankly enjoyed what he was doing, um, who kind of got off on trying to beat, you know, the system that it set up this really kind of true life cat and mouse game. I mean, it was this real sort of cops and robbers that I think the, you know, some of the police officers admitted flat out that, you know, they enjoyed kind of trying to match wits. 
you know, that they wanted to try to stay a step ahead of him as much as he wanted to stay a step ahead. And um, really to set up this amazing kind of opposition that is really hard to find in documentaries. There's such, you know, <laughs> diametrically well, opposed forces. Especially because there's no violence involved. Yeah, right, right. So the the big heist, what prompted him to say, this is what we're going after? Why that? It's not really in his wheelhouse. <laughs> it might be more in his wheelhouse than, you know, would be obvious. Um, and I think that he, you know, it's a phrase that I've heard him say uh, multiple times. And he actually says it on a wiretap, you know, the, a recording that we have in the film that he just likes having things that he's not supposed to have. And I think when people, okay. you know, kind of build up and assign value to things that he, you know, he, he likes collecting them and he's claimed that he has other things I'll say that, you know, no one knows about, um, you know, I know that he's stolen other things from museums, just strange kind of useless artifact type things, you know, that, you know, it's not like he could fence it and turn a profit on it or anything that I really think it's just, it's a prize and it's just sort of to prove that he can. And I think so, you know, in the case of this, this uh, crown jewel in Austria, you know, he was on a tour with his fiance or I guess kind of almost like a honeymoon trip, maybe right after they were married and, you know, I think just was on a tour and heard how rare these things were and um, heard what, you know, cultural value they had in Austria. And he saw an opportunity and just saw a challenge and decided to go for it, I guess. Honey, look what I got you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you needed a wedding gift. Yeah. Yeah. Honey, look what I got you. Is this better than the big ring? <laughs> what did he play? Like you said, he just holds on to this stuff. What did he plan to do with it was he gonna say look i got this and become a hero <laughs> in austria for finding the missing jewel or i mean that's like a, such a weird one like it's stuff from a museum that jewel seems like a strange one because it's not random it's been photographed throughout history what did he plan to do with it you know, I honestly have no idea. You know, I think he can, again, he can sort of rewrite history and say that he had these grand plans with it. I don't necessarily buy that personally, <laughs> but I think again, that he, you know, it's sort of bragging rights in a way, but I don't know, it's very hard for me to put my foot on. And I think, or <laughs> put my finger on, sorry. Um, finger, foot, whatever, <laughs> an appendage on, an appendage. I'll try to keep my feet off of it. Uh, yeah. You know, I think that that, and it's, you know, it's sort of the, to use a bad pun, it's sort of a crowning achievement, but I think that it's also just something that's very insightful in my mind and why, you know, we decided to call the film The Jewel Thief, even though obviously he was much, much more than that. You know, I think that that drive, you know, and what exactly was propelling him to do these things is just so fascinating to me because, you know, like I was saying before, he very quickly gathered more money than he could ever spend, you know, as a teenager and as a young person that there was just obviously something else, you know, and I spent so long really kind of trying to drill down into that. And I think there's, you know, a lot of answers that are just so interesting to get into that psychology because it is just so hard to understand why 
anyone would steal something like, you know, a crown jewel of Austria. Like he can't sell it. There's no monetary value. There's really no reason whatsoever to have it. But I think he was just, you know, he, by his own admission, he was addicted to that kind of thrill and that rush of just seeing what he could get away with, you know, what he could accumulate. Sort of like once you have, you know, all the money, once you're flying around the world on jets and, you know, scuba diving and, and just living that high life, it's sort of like, where do you go from there? Well, maybe something like, you know, a crown jewel is, is the logical next step. What was it like the first time you walked into a room with him? Because you had done all this research, you had tracked all these people and you tracked him down. You can't believe he said yes. I'm sure you kind of build up what this person is going to feel like in the room. What were you expecting and how did it compare to what you got? Yeah. I mean, you know, I was, I was obsessed with, I was and am just obsessed with this story for such a long time and, and had years and years to do research. I mean, when I, when he was first arrested, there was so much interest in his story. It was just really hard for me to get my foot in the door. I mean, he was getting requests from people like Oprah, you know, and Warner Brothers and, and big kind of budget Hollywood movies. Um, but, you know, I kind of always just stayed with me. And, and when I did go back, you know, it had just been so many years that I'd been researching him and kind of building him up in my mind and then thinking about what he was going to be like and this very calculating, very charismatic, you know, sort of con man figure and the first meeting I had with him was just, just strange, you know, I mean, he's very unnerving in almost his disinterest. <laughs> you know, that he's, he's almost, you know, he's obviously he knows these things. I mean, there's been tabloids and different things and, you know, I wasn't the first person to express interest in, in making a film. Um, but he just, you know, he seems so almost nonplussed about the things that he did. He's so casual about it that I think that was just very hard for me to to sort of grasp. You know, he'll, he'll tell me a story and my jaw just hits the ground and he just kind of, you know, he'll, he'll give you a little laugh maybe. But he's just very straightforward and very like, you know, almost like he's just telling you about, you know, his day at the office the day before or something. Because what I it's interesting, especially as a storyteller, how you kind of worked around this. And maybe this just was me. He's not a very likable guy and has zero charisma. Yet I agree. You, you, know. you can't wait to see the next video clip and you can't wait to hear the next thing that comes out of his mouth. And you're like, I don't really like this guy. He's not like some great guy. Well, I think we're certainly not out to glorify him, you know. Um, and I think that he, you know, he is a career criminal. I think he made a lot of very antisocial decisions in his life and what he chose to do. Um, you know, it's almost, it's funny that, you know, <laughs> the person that he is now, and I think the fact that we get to see, you know, all of these videos of him as a teenager in these kind of formative years when he's developing his skills and, you know, kind of launching this career, as it were, I think he's much more likable. You know, it's very easy for me to see why, you know, as a kind of teenage boy, especially like, I'd want to go hang out with that guy. He looks like fun, you know, oh. obviously up to no good. And he's just, he's the life of the party. And I'm so just, I'm so curious about where that turned and changed because the person that he is today is, you know, something that comes across as being much more cold, you know, much more calculating, um, 
but I think, you know, I think he is very human. I think he continues to be very, very vulnerable, but I think that he has kind of built a very, um, a very hard shell around himself. You know, he obviously has a real dark streak in him as well. So, you know, I just, again, I think the psychology is, is just amazing for me to, you know, kind of ponder on. I mean, I, I love playing armchair psychologist or just kind of trying to figure out what some of those impulses are, but he's just such a complex character and just truly has, you know, so many faces. I want to go back to his mother. Sure. Because she sat to talk quite a bit. It is clear that she loves him, but she's almost blinded by her love. Could be. In a strange way. Has she reconciled at all? Is she at all reconciled with who he actually is and what he's actually done? And I'm sure strangely proud of him because he was so freaking good at it. (laughs) You know, as a parent, that's a lot of very complex emotions. I mean, my son, we always used to joke, he had this magical ability to always be at the scene of the crime with his <laughs> friends, but never be the one that committed the crime or got in trouble for it. But he always seemed to be there. <laughs> and on one hand, I was always like, dude, like, this is not good. This is not okay. Blah, blah. And on another hand, I was like, pretty impressed with how slick he was. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that there, you know, I think, I think she's been through 50 very hard years as a parent. You know, I think she obviously he's been in trouble his entire life. So I think I think that from her point of view, that's what's known about him, that he sort of gets painted with one brush, that he's, you know, a criminal. And I know from the very start, it was very important to her to that she wanted to show a different side to him, that that's, you know, he's a very different person when he's with her, you know, that he is someone who's loved and, and who loves, you know, that, um, you know, I, I do think that she has a very strong urge to protect him and specifically to kind of try to protect his public image. So I'm sure that there's some degree of, you know, respect and, you know, that he's kind of gotten a little bit of his comeuppance that people can, you know, have some, you know, respect or awe by the things that he's done and and not just see him as, you know, kind of a dangerous or degenerate criminal. What are they living on financially now? Or they're like, you know, boxes of cougarans buried all over the world. You know, doubloons. <laughs> what are what is he living on now? And what is she living on now? I mean, again, do they still have the house that he bought when he was 16 with the nice appliances and the good cabinetry? It's a very good question and one that I don't have a very satisfying answer to, unfortunately. Um, You know, there's a lot of speculation about that. Um, You know, again, he kind of has has kind of a cop out type of an answer for that. You know, I think I will say that, you know, when he was ultimately arrested um, and I think this was true when he was young and he was arrested, too, that basically all of his assets were seized. Um, But you know, part of the deal that he made when he was arrested in Canada um, was that he basically, you know, pay back everything that he stole from the banks, which he did very quickly, which kind of signals to me that, you know, if that was every cent that he had to his name, it might not have been such a quick decision (laughs) that he was traveling the world. We know that he was committing crimes internationally, you know, so 
I think it stands to reason that he probably had a nest egg somewhere. And I don't know if that was enough for him to live off of or not, honestly. I mean, we can, we can speculate, but I will say that virtually every law enforcement agent that we spoke to, you know, holds a strong opinion that he's not really capable of, of stopping and reforming, but, you know, to hear him tell it, he's, he's stepped away from all that and he's living a relatively quiet life. What is his day-to-day life? Does he have a job? I mean, what is his day-to-day life? Does he have kids? Does he have solid relationships? Is he still in touch with his gang? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's, he is, you know, he's, he kind of prefers to keep a lot of that private, you know, I think for obvious reasons, but I can say that he is, you know, living a relatively quiet, but obviously comfortable life. Um, he doesn't have a, a nine to five. I don't know if he would be capable of something like that. <laughs> he wouldn't pass. He wouldn't pass the background yeah. check. <laughs> but I know he's, you know, even even kind of legally and not working in sort of the criminal realm. You know, he just has scheme after scheme of ways that he kind of dreams up to make money, and you know, just every bit is elaborate. You know, and he's doing it legally from from everything that I know, but. Um, yeah, he has he has a lot of irons in the fire at any given time. I can say that. And what about relationships and family and friends? That I mean, he continues to be very good friends with, you know, a lot of the people that he's seen in the film. He's obviously still very close to his mother. Um, again, you know, he one request that he's made throughout this entire process was that we kind of leave his, you know, his personal life today out of it. That um, we were sort of here to explore this, you know, part of his life that spanned about a 20-year uh, period. So um, I'll, I'll stay true to my word on that. I don't want to reveal much. I mean, that'll be for him to to discuss. But um, But yeah, I mean, I think, again, I don't have any evidence that he's doing anything criminal, but I can say that he's, you know, he's not not kind of working a nine to five. He seems to be living relatively comfortably. And I think he's, you know, found, found a lot of interesting ways to make a living. In your heart of hearts, and this is just your opinion, do you think he has completely stopped? Or do you think <laughs> that there's been, there's been a few things that haven't come to light yet? Oh, I mean, there's definitely a lot that has not come to light, you know, and I think it's, 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 it's kind of funny that, you know, you think about him being, you know, an open book and it's sort of like, why is he telling us all this stuff? But everything. There's a reason. There's a reason. (laughs) Well, every story and everything that he tells in the film has already been, you know, reported on publicly somewhere. I mean, you know, I, I had, I like you was shocked that you know he's not a household name in the United States but it was certainly a big tabloid story when he was arrested in Canada and you know a lot of local newspapers and things ran lots of stories about him so a lot of this is kind of out there and and these stories have been out there and I think once they're public he's been very you know eager to to kind of you know tell and reminisce those stories but there's there's just no way that there aren't equal crimes that we don't know about that have never come to light. See, my gut says he's still doing it. <laughs> I can see how you'd arrive there. <laughs> yeah. So your list of credits is very impressive and some pretty dark topics. It's a little frightening that this is the lightest film you've made. 
like, gee, I'm taking a break from, you know, genocide or whatever the other two were about and pivoting to a life of crime. Um, how was it different than making your other films? I think it was very different and, and intentionally very different. You know, I mean, I've been very invested in in social issues, you know, from foreign aid to education and um, kind of judicial issues and school to prison pipeline and um, spent many years working on those types of projects that I've, you know, really, you know, given all of myself to and all of my heart. But I think when you're working kind of day in, day out on problems that just seem so hard to unravel and some things that just sometimes feel hard to see a way out of, you know, I was excited to tell a story that was a very fun story just on its own merits, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I love character, you know, I, I love heist movies, you know, just so much about this was appealing to me and it's something that I've wanted to do for a very long time. Um, but I think it was in a lot of ways, just kind of nice to, to tell a story and make a film that I felt like you could really just have fun with in a very different, you know, kind of way. Do you think you could pearl off a heist now? I think I could pull one off. I think you've learned off. <laughs> do you think you've learned off? Like, I know I could pull off the perfect crime because I have watched, and I'm, people think I'm joking, I'm not literally every episode of Law & Order. So I am fairly convinced <laughs> that I could solve a crime yeah. as well as pull one off. I would, you know, I feel like, I could copy some things that he did, but I'm sure security has changed to the point that it wouldn't quite work in the same way, but just, you know, I, I just, I, I can't help but laugh and just really kind of marvel at the way that he got around some of these systems. I mean, it's just sort of like you have the world's most sophisticated lock, but during construction, you know, they just leave it sitting out and it's only hold on to a, a bank vault by four bolts. So right. it's like, if you're there before the money is, you can put in all kinds of trap doors and, and, you know, all kinds of ways to give yourself access. And I just, you know, when I first read some of this stuff, I just thought he was just one of the most, you know, unique thinkers, you know, in, in any realm that I'd ever really come across. What are you working on next? Um, I am just finishing a film about a blind Anglican priest who got a bionic eye implant. <laughs> and another interesting pivot for you <laughs> that's the fun thing about documentaries for me honestly that i think you know you're able to explore so many vast different topics you know that are maybe it just says something about the maker where you what you kind of find interest and in, in where you sort of find those stories but yeah i think those those kinds of things that just sort of make my jaw drop, you know, across realms and, and stories that really stick with me, you know, are the things that I, you know, I would say I choose to pursue, but it's almost like I don't have a choice once I'm, I'm that obsessed with something like this. I would love to hear the pitch walking into a room about, so there's this blind Anglican priest <laughs> who gets a bionic eye. I mean, that's, that's. Hilarity that's ensues. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Lanaman Seuss, thank you so much for everyone who's listening. The Jewel Thief is currently streaming on Hulu. Totally worth checking out. This has been so fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. Ahura Media Production.